the teachings of the apostles, or the catechism of the early church. Join Pastor Hook in today's teaching of the Didache. But today we're going to talk about chapter 9. So we're moving into chapter 9 of the Eucharist, or chapter 9 of the Didache, which talks about the Eucharist. And I think the first thing I want to do is just pull up the Didache, chapter 9, and let's read through it and see what it says, and then I'm going to have some commentary on it. So chapter 9 is the Eucharist, the cup, and the bread. And concerning the Eucharist, hold Eucharist thus. First, concerning the cup, we give thanks to thee, our Father, for the holy vine of David, thy child, which thou didst make known to us through Jesus, thy child, to thee be glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we give thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge which thou didst make known to us through Jesus Christ, thy child, to thee be glory forever. As this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains, but was brought together and became one, so let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom, for thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. But let none of you eat or drink of your Eucharist except those who have been baptized in the Lord's name. For concerning this also did the Lord say, Give not that which is holy to the dogs. So a couple of things here. First of all, uh, this appears to be what I would call a communion or a Eucharistic liturgy that would happen around the Eucharist. And uh, what we basically do is we've, to, in our tradition, we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians, and each of those have uh, what happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Uh, and so we take all of that information and we've combined it into kind of a common uh, Eucharistic liturgy, which is on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and after he blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and after he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of all of you. This cup is the New Testament to my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So that is not word for word in any of the Gospels, but it's pretty close. Um, so we've taken all the Gospels and 1 Corinthians, and we've taken those words of institution, and we've combined them together, and that's what we say in our communion service, just to remind people of what Jesus said. Why? Well, because Jesus never really said, why do we come together, except that... Um, we should come together. We should be unified. This is my cup. This is my body. Uh, this Do this in remembrance of me. So the reason why we come together is to remember Jesus. Well, remember what about Jesus? Well, remember that he came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, uh, that he sacrificed his life for our honor, that because of him, we're now in the kingdom, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and we have power. All that stuff is parts of things that we should remember in Holy Communion. But God didn't really, other than, you know, other than instituting it at the Last Supper, which was on the night he was betrayed, uh, he didn't really have a lot of time to spend telling us why we would celebrate the Lord's Supper. So when the early church looked at this, they said, well, why should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, it comes out of the words of the institution. We give thanks Father, for the holy vine of David. So this is the vine, which is the cup, which thou didst make known to us through thy child Jesus. So 
this wine that we drink comes to us and we remember our dear child Jesus. And concerning the broken bread, we give you thanks for the life and knowledge which thou didst make known to us through Jesus thy child. So that the bread is life and knowledge. And as the broken bread was scattered upon the mountains, but was brought together and became one, so let the church be gathered together from the ends of the earth and become one. So in the Didache, the purpose of the whole the Lord's Supper is that as the whole church gathers together and does the Lord's Supper in various places, uh, we're reminded to be that we're one, that it is not separate churches celebrating different places, but it's one church separating in different places. And this is still true today. We have one church, and that is the called out saints of God, what we call the saints of God, the baptized of God, the, the people in the kingdom of God, all these people are one church and they're scattered throughout the world and they celebrate in different places and different times and different locations and have a lot of different practices, different languages, uh, different countries. And yet it's one church. It's one church. And this is what Jesus prayed for in John 17. He said, uh, may they be one as you and I are one. Lord, may they be one church. And this particular thing just resonates very, very, very strongly with me, and I don't know why. I, I love my particular denomination. I think it's a great denomination, but I think the challenges of living in a denomination are that we get so consumed in believing that we're right or we're the only part that has it right that we kind of separate ourselves from other denominations. But... Um, we have different tribes, but there's one Lord of all the tribes, and that is Jesus. And my prayer, I, I don't know why, and maybe it's just because it was Jesus's prayer, is that we not be so much separated, but that we understand that we are, we may do different practices and do different things and have different languages and emphasize different things, but we're one church. And as one church, we cover a lot of ground. Like whatever your church has been called to or your denomination has been called to, that's kind of your ground that you stake out and, um, and hold it proudly and be, be proud of the things that your church does. But don't be so proud of it that you say that nobody else is part of the church of God because there's many, many people that do different things that are part of the church of God. Now, um, that's kind of what I read here in verse 4. As the broken bread was scattered upon the mountains, but was brought together and became one, so let the church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into the kingdom. For thine is the glory and the power through Jesus forever. So that's almost like thy kingdom come, thy will be done uh, in the Lord's Prayer. Let your kingdom be done in us and let us be one kingdom on earth. And if we're a kingdom on earth, we should treat other Christians as part of the kingdom. And yeah, we can argue and have theological debate about whether or not they're interpreting portions of Scripture correctly. Uh, we should hold them accountable to Scripture. They should hold us accountable to Scripture. Um, and that truly is, if there's, if there's one thing that, uh, that Protestant faith coming out of the Lutheran Reformation stands on, that I love, it's the, it's the three solis of, of Luther, it's the grace alone. Basically that we, we can't do it by ourselves, we completely rely on God's grace, faith alone. 
that we are to build our faith, that, we are, that our tree roots are, gonna, are supposed to continue to grow and grow and grow in our lives. And the stronger the faith underneath the soil, the bigger the tree above the soil and the more fruit it bears, and that we are to be growing to become trees planted by living water uh, in its due season, that the, you know, the birds come and nest in its branches, that, 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 that growing into a strong oak tree that is fed by the word of God and, and is just strong, uh, in in faith is is uh, the other thing. So sola faith, sola sola gratia, and then sola scriptura. That we coming out of this Protestant Reformation place a high emphasis on scripture. And what I mean by the high emphasis on scripture, I mean if you really look at what Luther said, is that we follow scripture. If it's not in Scripture, if it's not commanded in Scripture, commanded by Jesus, we are not bound to it. But if it is commanded by Jesus and in Scripture, then we are bound to it. Our northern star, our light, our our confession, everything is bound to God's Word. And if you look at Protestantism, throughout all the branches of Protestantism, God's Word is primary. And that is something that I believe is wonderful. And, and those, so those are the three things coming out of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide. Grace, Scripture, and Faith. And I think that's wonderful. Um, but, uh, and I, I think you could say that that's universal across Christendom. Because uh, even the church that we broke off from, the Roman Catholic Church, now is placing more and more emphasis on Scripture than it used to coming out of the Protestant Reformation. Um, they, we've uh, had many, many discussions with the Roman Catholics about, about what saves us. Is it, is it our works that save us or is it God's grace that saves us? And we've even signed a joint declaration of justification with the Roman Catholic Church that kind of goes towards understanding what the importance of justification is, which is basically sola gratia. So you have uh, sola scriptura, sola gratia, and sola faith. Of course, faith has always been primary uh, in God's kingdom. Um, so I, I, I think we're making inroads into trying to bring the church together. Um, I don't know if we'll ever be back together as one, as Jesus wanted us to do, but we can make inroads in that direction. But one thing we can do is that we can, we can you know, stand up on our heels and fight for, for the theology and the, and the things that are contained in Scripture. But we should not bind anybody by something that's not contained in Scripture. So if there's somebody out there that's doing a practice that's neither forbidden nor commanded in Scripture, then we have no right to say what you're doing is wrong. Uh, we can say it's different and we don't understand it and it might be strange to us, but if it's not forbidden or commanded, if it doesn't go against God's word, then I don't think we have any right to say that's wrong. Um, and of course, the uh, probably the, the number one way to, de to determine kind of what's a, a church that's, you know, that's following that is, are they orthodox? The... Um, for the first for the first 1050 years 1052 1054 1054 for the first 1000 years of the church after Jesus 1054 AD the church was one 
there was no different branches. There were there were orders, but there was one church. And um, and in that time, they had these things called ecumenical councils. And there were there were seven ecumenical councils. The first one being in uh, uh, was it the nice the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D. I think that was Nicaea. Um, and it was, it was ordered by Constantine. He brought together all the bishops of all the churches and they came and they debated theology and they came up with, this is, this is kind of what we believe the Christian church, what binds us together. And they did that several different times until the schism of 1054 AD. So you could say that up until 1054 AD, all those ecumenical councils, those are things that unified the church and that was kind of what we said this is our exposition of scripture this is how we understood the apostles and scripture and all that sort of thing um and that worked until the great schism and then there's more schisms the lutheran um the protestant reformation and now there's lots and lots of schisms but the so there's lots and lots of people going lots you know lots and lots of tribes or traditions or or denominations going in their own direction but the one thing you can say is probably that you could go back to the first seven ecumenical councils and see what they fought over and say, do you at least believe that? Because we were unified and this is kind of how we came together. So that would be another way to look at the unification of the church. And then another one would be the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and maybe the Athanasian Creed. All of those were pre-1054. The Apostles' Creed came out of uh, the, it was later, but it was the creed that was kind of handed down from the Apostles. So the Apostles' Creed is very, very early in its earliest form. Uh, before it was the Apostles' Creed, it was called the Old Roman Creed. Uh, and before that, it was uh, the Regula Fide, which were basically fragments of what the Apostles were teaching that they put together. All of that stuff is probably okay and makes, makes a church orthodox. But to me, the primary of all of it, outside of the Apostles' Creed Nicene, Athanasian, which is good, and I, those are things that we follow and we trust, is God's Word, is His Holy Scripture. And so that's what unifies us. So when we come together in the, in the Lord's Supper, we should remember that we are one church scattered throughout the world. So the question you have to ask is, does that then translate into, uh, can we celebrate the Lord's Supper with people outside of our faith tradition. And that is um, not contained here in the Didache. The only commandment here in the Didache for who can and who cannot be partaking of the Lord's Supper is whether or not you've been baptized. Now that's interesting because Jesus never commanded baptism as a prerequisite for the Lord's Supper. Uh, when he got up into the upper room and instituted it, baptism, you know, he didn't, I, I don't even know if all the apostles were baptized. I imagine that probably there's some anecdotal evidence uh, in history that they were baptized, but I don't see in, um, in scripture where they actually were baptized. But on the flip side, as the church started spreading in the book of Acts, one of the things they immediately did for all of the people that they encountered was to get them baptized. So I would find it hard to believe that they weren't baptized. But I also know that there's no, there's no place in Scripture where you see that they actually were baptized. 
Um, they may have been baptized by John the Baptist, or uh, I don't, there's no recording of Jesus ever baptizing them. Uh, and it may be that, uh, that because they were apostles, that apostles trump baptism, so you don't need to be baptized. I mean, I don't know how they dealt with this because they didn't really record how they dealt with this. But there's no question that as the early church started growing, baptism was your entrance into the kingdom. And so there was this coming out of the Didache, which says that if you're going to take the Lord's Supper, you got to be baptized. You got to be part of the kingdom. You have to understand what it is that you're doing. So um, that's all fine and dandy. But the next section is really interesting. Let's move on to chapter 10 because uh, this will be fascinating for you. But after you're satisfied with food, give thus give thanks. We give thanks to thee, O Holy Father, for thy holy name, which thou didst make to tabernacle in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality which thou didst make known to us through, thy, through Jesus thy child. To thee be glory forever. Thou, Lord Almighty, didst create all things for thy name's sake, and didst give food and drink to men for their enjoyment, that they might give thanks to thee, but as thou hast blessed with spiritual food and drink to eternal light through thy child, above all, we give thanks to thee, for thou art mighty. To thee be glory forever. I think we'll stop right there for a second. Because this is fascinating. After you're satisfied with food, then give thanks this way. We give thanks to thee, O Holy Father, for thy holy name, which thou didst tabernacle in our hearts. So that's a reminder of the tabernacle of the Lord in the Old Testament where the Lord dwelled. So the tabernacle, so the Lord's dwelling in your heart, the Lord's tabernacling in your heart, which is rich theology. And for the knowledge and faith and immortality, which thou didst make known to us through thy child. So also at the Lord's Supper, you remember that you're an immortal child, that because you've been baptized, because you um, stay connected with God through the church, through the Lord's Supper, you have immortality. And so part of coming out of the Lord's Supper is to remind yourself that even though you may die, you will live forever. That's cool theology. I like that. But the one thing I want to just spend a little bit of time on is this chapter nine, chapter 10, verse 1. But after you're satisfied with food, give thanks. After you're satisfied with food, we're talking about the Eucharist, talking about the Lord's Supper. What in the world are you talking about satisfied with food? And here we have to go back to that book. Oh, I put it back on the shelf, um, the teachings of the early church. The way they celebrated the Lord's Supper in the early church is vastly different from how we celebrate it here uh, in, uh, in our modern time. Uh, what You'll remember that they did not have a set, like Sunday worship hadn't really been finalized yet. Uh, we celebrate on Sunday, which is the Lord's Day, because that's the day that Jesus arose, uh, and we worship together on the Lord's Day. The Old Testament went, you know, and celebrated the Sabbath. They went to synagogue, but we as a church started gathering together immediately on every day of the week. I mean, you see that in Acts 2, um, that they came together daily to celebrate, you know, for the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer, and then pooling their resources to, to give to anyone who had need. That's coming out of Acts. Nowhere in there does it talk about a Sunday worship because they didn't yet, early, early, early church. They couldn't yet 
because they would not have had a place where they could worship a large number of people. They had house churches, which kind of was a development that arised where Christians would come together in small groups and worship God and, you know, maybe sing some spiritual hymns, come together. But you almost get the sense that the church, this way, these people practicing the way of life came together almost daily, like they lived life together. They watched out for together. Basically, they expanded their family from their immediate family to the family of God. And they, and they would come together. They would celebrate together. In Acts 2, they, they met daily in the temple courts. But that only lasted for as long as the temple court could hold them. And then they moved out of the temple courts and they went into house churches, uh, which is different people celebrating in different places. And that must have been a difficult move because the temple court would have been a great place to celebrate, you know, be church. But at pretty soon, you're raising, you know, you're getting too many people. Uh, the Jewish faith is still not sure how they're dealing with the Christian sect. And even at the time of Paul, Paul was covered because the Jewish faith was covered as a religion by the Roman Empire. But Christianity was covered only if it was part of the Jewish faith. Uh, and so Paul said, I'm just, you know, I'm a subsect of the Jewish faith. And that's how I am still covered. But the Jewish faith, once the Christians became so powerful and were meeting in the temple court, they, they just basically kicked the Christians out of the temp, temple court. And so then they had to start meeting uh, in different places. And so they met in house churches. And um, there may be one house church per community. Uh, and maybe as the community grow, they would split and have more house churches and then split and have more house churches. And, and they did you know, the work of Christianity. But it was more of a community meeting around a centralized location than it was about worship on Sunday morning. And I think that's the thing. And I love worship on Sunday morning. It is a very efficient way to do all of this stuff. Uh, we gather together for the apostles' teaching, for fellowship, for breaking of bread and prayer. Uh, and then we pool our resources to love the community around us. Those are the five things that happen in worship on Sunday morning. But the early churches, they gathered, they did not celebrate the Lord's Supper as we did. Basically, what they did was they had what was called an agape meal. Uh, people would come together and they would pool their resource, pool their food together. They would celebrate a meal. And then in the midst of that meal, they would remember Jesus with these words. Um, and so the words in chapter 9 are what they say when they're celebrating Jesus. That's like the words of institution, but they're not using our words of institution. They're using the ones that they came up with. And then after they're satisfied with food, at the end of the meal, that's when they say, we give thanks to you for thy holy name, which thou didst tabernacle in our hearts for the knowledge and faith. Um, because they probably maybe did a teaching in that meal, or maybe they, they did fellowship in that meal, or maybe they shared fellowship together. And so, um, you know, we have bits of this that we still understand. So, for example, we have potlucks. And potlucks have been a part of Christendom for as long as I've been a Christian. But, you know, coming together to share a meal together is very, very Christian. We have done that for a very, very long time. Uh, when we celebrate the, the Lord's Supper, uh, in our tradition, we bring people up, you know, around the altar and we call those tables. You say, why do you call that a table? You know, welcome to the table of the Lord. I think that's a throwback 
to when people would gather together in house churches and have the agape meal around tables. So, you know, as you, as you move and you modify and you change things, you try to keep some of the language to help people remember what's going on. But somehow, this idea that we come together in fellowship, that we share a meal together, that we grow together, we might even have a teaching together, and then in the midst of that, we celebrate that God is with us in the Lord's Supper, uh, and then we go home. Um, we we lost that, and it's turned into we come to church, we you know we quickly do communion, and then you know that's only part of the worship service. And we've lost some of the the fellowship aspect of it, the the love aspect of it. Um, and I can see why that happens because in First Corinthians, Paul. And maybe we'll look at this tomorrow. Paul is uh, excoriating the church because when they come together for this agape meal, this love meal, this this fest, this love fest or this potluck, the people who are wealthy are lording their wealth over the people that are poor and they're not sharing the meal with the poor. Um, and they're creating divisions within the meal, which is maybe why they got rid of the whole agape meal. I mean, maybe it's just impossible. What Jesus said uh, is to come together and to share a meal together and to have fellowship together uh, and not lord your ability to create a great meal over somebody who doesn't have the ability to create a meal. Now, today in our world, you know, food is so ubiquitous. And I mean, anybody can go and get food and prepare something and bring it to a meal. So we are not as challenged as they were in the early church because you literally did have people that may have shown up to church for the meal because if they didn't show up to the church for the meal, they were going to die. I mean, that you literally may have had people show up for church to eat this agape fest because it was the only meal they're going to get maybe for the whole week. Um, and so you can kind of see how that division would have happened because you probably had other people, maybe wealthy Christians, who would prepare a feast, you know, it's okay, we're going to church, let's prepare some extra food. And then you go there and then you have these people that are starving, you know, one meal away from death. Um, and that could create that could create divisions in the church. And um, so Paul, and we will look at this tomorrow, We uh, not tomorrow, on Monday. We'll look at this on Monday and see what Paul says about this because it helps put a context to what the Lord's Supper and the Eucharist is. Um, so, Ponder on that. You know, look it up if you want to over the weekend. It's it's interesting. Um, it is really fascinating. All right. So I think we'll drop it there. It's uh, it's time to quit. Um, I hope you have a great weekend. Uh, it should be a beautiful weekend. I guess we're going to get rain on Monday. I don't know if we'll get a president over the weekend, but just stay calm. Uh, it will eventually work itself out one way or the other. And um, like I said, no, no president really or any administration or any governor or any um, elected official really makes a whole change. It's a whole, it's a whole community. The only, I will tell you this, and maybe this is why I'm, I feel that Christianity is a more powerful force than politics in the world. Because as in p political systems, it's all based upon power, but not changing the heart. In Christianity, the words of Jesus changes the heart. And when you and, and Christianity as a movement, when it comes in and it infiltrates anything, uh, it's like it's like uh, light, it's like yeast 
that comes into a system and changes the system from within. And, um, and that is much more powerful and long-lasting and um, than any political system on earth. And so while I do follow politics and, um, and you know, I have the issues that I'm concerned about and that sort of thing, um, truly it is not as powerful a force as the kingdom, which is the most powerful force in our nation. So I guess I'll leave you with that. Uh, let's close in prayer. Dear God, we continue to pray for um, our country as they navigate what their new normal is. Uh, thank you for this time together around you. Be with us throughout this weekend and bring us back together again on Monday. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.